0: Press from Cast Iron Brains, a Brainiron.com production. Here's 11 minutes or so of news for today. Friday, December 22nd, 2023. The Commerce Department announced Friday morning that the annual inflation rate stands at 2.6%, down again from 2.9% in October, when it dipped below 3% for the first time since March of 2021. This brings the annual inflation rate closer to the Federal Reserve's 2% target, making the prospect of interest rate cuts all the more likely after the new year. The slowing inflation rate can be attributed to the first month-to-month decline of the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index since April of 2020. In other words, for the first time since the first two months of the coronavirus pandemic, goods and services were cheaper last month than they were the month before. The stock market made broad gains early Friday in response to the news, with the three major indices on pace for their eighth consecutive week of positive returns. The best such run for the S&P 500 since 2017, and the first time for the Dow since 2019. The U.S. economy grew at a 4.9% annualized rate in the third quarter, according to revised numbers issued by the Commerce Department, and the economy is expected to continue to grow in the fourth quarter, though at a slower pace due to a widening trade deficit and less inventory building. The strong U.S. economy stands in contrast to what's happening in the United Kingdom, as Britain might be entering a recession, according to numbers from the Office of National Statistics. The gross domestic product in the UK shrank by one-tenth of a percent in the third quarter, following a flat second quarter. Britain's economy has been relatively slow to recover from the pandemic downturn. Only Germany's recovery has been slower among peer nations in Europe. A study published on Wednesday in the journal Nature presents what the authors say is, quote, consistent evidence that online search to evaluate the truthfulness of false news articles actually increases the probability of believing them, quote. In other words, doing your own research on the internet actually makes it more likely that a person will believe claims that are not true. The researchers further found that searching online leads people to find corroborating evidence for information from low-quality sources, which, regardless of the truth value of that information, reinforces their belief in the claim that they are researching. When people go online to do their own research about fake news or misinformation, the study claims, they are likely to fall into data voids, and what low-quality information they do find only reinforces their belief in false facts or narratives. At the same time, online research seems to increase belief in true news from low-quality sources, but that same effect is not as consistent when corroboration comes from mainstream sources. In other words, if asked to research a true claim on the internet, a person is more likely to trust that the thing they are evaluating is true after finding confirmation from a relatively disreputable outlet, like Occupy Democrats or Judicial Watch, than by finding confirmation from higher-quality sources, like the New York Times, CNN, The Wall Street Journal, or Fox News. The researchers conclude that the findings, quote, highlight the need for media literacy programs to ground their recommendations in empirically tested strategies and for search engines to invest in solutions to the challenges identified here, end quote. An article in the New York Times today attempts to contextualize a text message exchange between Hunter Biden and his daughter that Republicans have used as evidence of President Joe Biden's criminality. The text in question reads as follows, I hope you all can do what I did and pay for everything for this entire family for 30 years. It's really hard, but don't worry, unlike Pop, I won't make you give me half your salary, end quote. Republicans have claimed that the message suggests that the elder Biden was receiving half of Hunter's millions in earnings during his son's time as a consultant for the Ukrainian gas company Burisma and another Chinese energy firm. An influence and corruption scheme that would be markedly worse for the president if he truly was financially benefiting from his son's work, especially given that he did not report this alleged income. The article reframes the text through Hunter's daughter's perspective, who explains that her father was always telling his kids about how relatively tough he had it growing up, when he and his brother were expected to work and contribute to the family as early as high school and through college. The presidential granddaughter is describing her father as a drug-addicted, pathetic, uphill five miles in the snow both ways blowhard, rather than a victim of Joe's relentless criminal scheming which, if I may briefly editorialize, is much more in keeping with the reality of the situation, it seems. A paywall-busting copy of the article is available to read by clicking through the link in today's show note at brainiron.substack.com. Republican lawmakers in Ohio are making extensive changes to the marijuana legalization law that is set to go into effect next Thursday. A ballot measure that passed with 57% of popular support in November would have allowed individuals to grow up to six plants at home, but current Senate legislation would eliminate home growth, reduce the amount of marijuana that an individual is permitted to possess, lower the level of what constitutes a legal amount of THC in a product, and increase the tax rate on all marijuana sales, and would redirect revenues from sale of the drug back into the general state fund and law enforcement training, rather than into a fund for the creation of local, government-run dispensaries. The changes to the law would need to also be passed by the Ohio House before being signed by Governor Mike DeWine, and both House Republicans and DeWine have indicated they lean more in the direction of going with the referendum as passed by the people, with fewer dramatic changes to the voters' expressed intent. Now, some TMP analysis. The story is an increasingly familiar one, as Republican lawmakers in red-leaning states have often found themselves at odds with the will of the people, as expressed in ballot referenda. The dynamic is an interesting one. For a variety of reasons, including gerrymandering, uncontested elections that follow primaries that select for party purity rather than a willingness to get stuff done, and the ideological party sort of the last couple of generations— Americans have been electing increasingly ideologically strident lawmakers, leading to a situation where the public and their representatives hold vastly different opinions. This is made plain by an issue like marijuana in Ohio or abortion in Kansas or felon voting rights in Florida. The public demands one thing, and the legislature pushes back. Until some fundamental changes are made in the way we choose our representatives, the disconnect between what the public wants and what their lawmakers are willing to give them will only be exacerbated. Representative government, eh? In related news, the White House announced Friday that President Joe Biden is issuing pardons for thousands of individuals convicted of use and possession of marijuana on federal lands. Though no one will be freed from prison as a result of these pardons, the idea is to wipe clean criminal records of those already free, making it easier for those previously convicted of use and possession to secure employment, housing, and education. A federal appeals court breathed new life into a lawsuit filed against the alternative rock band Nirvana on Thursday. Spencer Eldon is the now 32 years old man who was photographed floating in a swimming pool as an infant, a picture that became the album cover for Nirvana's generation-defining album Nevermind. Eldon claims that he has suffered permanent harm as a result of his association with the Epical Album, which has included severe emotional distress and a, quote, lifelong loss of income earning capacity, end quote. The lawsuit was originally dismissed as being beyond the statute of limitations for such a claim, but the appeals court ruled that the reissue of the album in 2021 for its 30th anniversary constituted a new potential instance of harm, resetting the 10-year Statute of limitations. Eldon and his attorneys claim that the album cover makes him a victim of child sexual abuse imagery, which is a decidedly strange claim, especially if you are an owner of one of the 30 million or so copies of the album that have been sold since 1991. Kurt Cobain, the lead singer and songwriter for Nirvana, who died in 1994, told record company executives, who were nervous that the album cover would cause too much controversy, that he was willing to compromise by adding a sticker to cover the apparently offensive part of the photo, as long as the sticker read, If you're offended by this, you must be a closet pedophile. The album shipped with no such sticker. Now, here's a look at the weather. This is from something I wrote a few years ago about Charles Dickens' immortal classic, A Christmas Carol. It being Christmas weekend, I thought it worth revisiting. Scrooge's journey is less about growth or transformation than it is about remembering something he already knew to be true, but had forgotten or suppressed. Dickens assigns to Scrooge the humanitarian rebirth he'd like the audience to experience, an awakening of the soul that he hopes will have wide cultural and political ramifications. By packaging these potentially dangerously maudlin ambitions in a short Christmas-centric ghost story wrapped around an instantly iconic misanthrope, Dickens gets away with a level of enthusiastic earnestness that would otherwise come off cloyingly. And no doubt does, anyway, to those disinclined to the spirit of the season. I don't think we're supposed to recognize in Scrooge any particular individual, but Scrooge as society in industrial, urban London. Scrooge's personal rebirth is perennial and lasting, but we revisit the story every year, and readapt it anew seemingly as often, because the world continues to be a difficult place in which to find oneself the machinery of capitalism as exploitative and punishing as ever, despite undeniable material improvements. Before A Christmas Carol was what it became, Dickens thought he was going to write a pamphlet about the brutality of child labor in England, specifically in response to a report from the government that included a series of interviews conducted by a journalist he knew. He ultimately decided to write his ghost and time travel story instead, no doubt because the audience commercial and otherwise, for pleasing humorous fiction was considerably broader than what exists for enraged, scolding essays. This was before Twitter, after all. But expanding the audience in this way comes with a cost, that any specific political point he may be trying to make is subject to both interpretation and outright dismissal. It's just a story, after all, and it will be appropriated however the audience, and eventually Disney, sees fit. That he seemed to believe that his story could have a sledgehammer-level impact on society-wide problems of poverty and social injustice is a tribute to his optimism or his arrogance, and probably both. A pamphlet might have changed a few minds in 1843, but A Christmas Carol has been softening hardened hearts and thawing frozen souls for a dozen generations, and it still matters. Because it's important to be reminded from time to time, that kindness and generosity are central to a meaningful life, that we humans are in it together, often pitted against malevolent or just entropic forces that can only be overcome communally. It is a simple message that we all already know, one so pure and obvious that Ebenezer Scrooge himself realizes it almost immediately, not in the closing pages of the story, but right at the beginning. In an increasingly atomized and isolating world that insists, against all the evidence, that we're actually more connected to one another than ever before. It may be a simple message that we all already know, but it is also a beautiful one. And one we need to be shown again every once in a while. I do, anyway. That's the weather from here. How's it look out your window? The Morning Press is a production of the BrainIron.com multinational media empire. Please direct comments and complaints to BrainIronPodcast at gmail.com or visit the website at BrainIron.com. For a transcript of today's episode and links to the stories referenced, find the Morning Press at BrainIron.Substack.com. Thanks, and barring the sudden onset of the inevitable, we'll talk to you sometime next week. Merry Christmas. The proceeding was created with 100% human content.